0: A whirlwind, a whirlwind 12 months is, is what's happened, which is great because, you know, the city needed it and we needed to see units absorb and, and inventory come off the market and, and all of that has happened, which is terrific. And um, I think, you know, a lot of smart people got a lot of really good bargains uh, in at the end of 20 and into the early 21. And, uh, you know, as the, as the year progressed, obviously things uh, firmed up and, and negotiability reduced, but... Absorption has been incredible. I mean, you know, Laura will go through some of the numbers for you, but um, you know, we we absorbed we absorbed a tremendous amount of units and, and closed a tremendous amount of units in twenty and twenty one. But the number of units that went into contract in twenty one that either haven't yet closed is even greater. So you know, it 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 really shows an amazing progression of the marketplace from you know basically zero activity to you know, hyper speed activity, literally the, the change occurred in, in a three month period. And not that we do a whole lot of um, market, market analysis on the rental side, but the rental market, I mean, you know, since the beginning of, of, of last year, completely turned around, which I think really helped fuel the sale market, frankly.
1: Yeah, I, they, they, are, they were very, they re- reflected themselves, exactly. They did. It. And it was all about people just coming back and feeling comfortable
0: people coming back, feeling comfortable, jobs coming back. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, some, some natural disasters on the West Coast. I think a lot of the fires and, 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 the, and, and some of the environmental issues that were going on in the West Coast and Midwest pushed a lot of people here to New York. Plus as, as, as uh, politically incorrect as it may sound, a tremendous amount of wealth was built in the last 24 to 30 months. And I was with um, a very smart, much smarter than I person that is a big wig at Morgan Stanley a few weeks ago. And um, he said, you know, no one's really talking about the, check this number out, folks, $37 trillion of wealth that was built in the last 30 months. 37 I suspect we're gonna talk trillion. about it today. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of that money is coming here. And we're seeing it with, 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 with parents buying for their adult children, parents buying with their adult children, Uh, the the, the, the jobs you know, where I was just speaking to a developer. She graduated college. Her first job with Merrill Lynch was in 1999. She was making 55,000 a year, which for those of us who were in the job market back then, that was a lot of money. That same person today is coming into a job between 150 and $200,000 out of college. Wow, And they wow. still can't afford what you're selling. <laughs> well, well, actually, Laura will tell you they can't afford it because some of the most active parts of the market are four four million and up. Right.
2: All right, yeah. with that, let me start <laughs> by saying, welcome to Burroughs and Burbs number 39. This is Stephen Cleverman's second time on the show and Laura Tamana's first time on the show. But first, who is Stephen Cleverman? Glad you asked. Uh, let's see, share screen, boom. That's Steven Kligerman. He is president Brown-Harris-Stevens Development Marketing. That means all of the new apartment buildings and restored brownstones, I guess. Um, we're gonna see some restored landmarks. I don't know about brownstones. <laughs> and with him, Laura Tomana, vice president of research and market analytics at Brown-Harris-Stevens, formerly an economist at the Real Estate Board of New York, right? Yep,
3: you got it.
2: All right, we we'll that right. <laughs> we're going to look at things like 393 West End. We're going to look at Vanda Water. We're going to talk about New York View and 200 Amsterdam. This is the kind of product that we're talking about, so I just figured I would give a quick overview, and with that. I want to also introduce my partner in New York. Uh, Roberto. Hello, hello.
1: How are you, everybody? Thank you for coming.
2: Roberto and I met because I get his market report on what's going on in New York every month. It's my favorite snapshot of the New York real estate market. And we look at at Stephen and Laura to give us a subset of that report on the new development. and that's why we're here today. So with that, I've, what I've heard for the last couple of minutes, for anybody who, who joined us five minutes ago, Stephen's been talking about the dramatic change in the market in a little over a
3: year.
0: Yeah. So, Laura, why don't you give uh, everyone some highlights and some stats and, and do what you do so amazingly well. Uh, we've been really fortunate to have Laura join us uh, in the last year. Uh, she's been a tremendous asset to our organization and a pleasure to work with. So I'm sure you'll all enjoy hearing what she has to say for a few minutes.
3: Thank you so much, Steve. That was quite the introduction. Um, Hi, everyone. John and Roberto, thank you so much for having me. You know, as Steve mentioned earlier, 2021 was really a record breaking year. Um, There were north of $8 billion in new development sales, which is almost four times as much as we saw in 2020. And that just includes units that went into contract, that doesn't include, you know, over 2000 units had also closed within 2021 as well. Um, you know, Steve also mentioned earlier, inventory has tightened. You know, we saw such a demand for new development inventory with a lack of good product coming to market. Um, and with the wealth that was built over 2021 and buyers coming back to the city, you know, jobs coming back, you know, return to office coming back. Mortgage rates remaining low for the most part of the year um, and, and incentives, you know, still strong in, in the first quarter into the second quarter of the year. There was a ton of contract activity um, that is now closing pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, in addition to over $8 billion in sale, which is just such a tremendous number, the average price of all of those units signed was over $4 million, uh, close to $4.5 million, which is about 30% higher than we saw in 2020 Um, so on a high level that's really where we saw the market go through 2021 you know it was a huge comeback from what happened you know when the market really essentially stalled especially for new development construction stalled you know people were not purchasing new developments 12 to 18 months in advance of move-ins like they once were um, you know, and then throughout the beginning of the year, when construction picked up and buildings were, were more move-in ready, and people were really excited to not only get back to New York, but come here from the West Coast. Um, you know, Steve can can attest to a lot of the buyer activity that we saw in terms of you know parents buying for their adult children. Um, you know, we saw a lot of first time buyers given the mortgage rates that I touched on earlier and just a whole collaboration of factors that made this really the strongest year yet in new development.
0: Yeah. We also saw the return of the foreign buyer, particularly the Chinese buyer. Um, uh, it really about the middle to end of the second quarter, the Chinese buyer started to come back and scoop up apartments between one and three million dollars at a pretty healthy pace. Um, you know, which also helped fuel the marketplace as well. And you know, one of the stats that that Laura came up with in our fourth quarter report also is that even though the average price was still north of four million dollars, um, about 72% of all transactions were still between one and three or one and four million dollars. So you know, the, the the high end of the market pushes those averages up a lot because you get these 10, 20, 30, 40, hundred million dollar sales, but if you look at the number of transactions, it was really the one to three million dollar marketplace that really buoyed the activity in the marketplace, even though every every week, week after week, we saw, you know, the all report with plus four million dollar apartments selling at 30, 40, 50 a week. Mm-hmm. You know, it still made up. The, the, the a smaller percentage of the actual number of units sold. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking at your business plan going forward, is what is still moving in two bedrooms, which used to always lead the new development market, really came back strong in 21. With regards to the foreigners,
1: um, you said you've seen a lot of the Chinese buyers coming, but is it, is, it, is it anywhere near where it was pre-pandemic? And also from a standpoint of all foreigners, like How much how much have they come back? 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent. And why?
2: And why, why are they suddenly coming back? Because New York isn't fully open. It's not because they got a job here or are they educating their kids here or are they parking money here and not actually physically coming? Why is the foreign buyer suddenly back in our
1: market?
0: Well, I think they actually are part of the money. Um, I think there's a flight to quality. I think that, you know, also you had a major economic, uh, you know, blow up in, in China, you know, last year in their real in, particularly in the in the real estate realm. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the foreign buyer, particularly the Chinese buyer, is a very savvy buyer. So they saw a little weakness in the market and they wanted to take advantage of that. Uh, you know, but plus it is a flight to quality. It's, it's equity preservation. Uh, I would say that at least the foreign buyer has come back to a 50% of where it was pre-pandemic. It may be even a little bit higher. The difference is where they're coming from. Um, we're seeing more more Chinese, more Korea. We used to see a lot of Korean buyers years ago and now we're seeing them again. Um, we're not seeing as many South American buyers. I think a lot of them are going to South Florida still. Um, but, and we're starting to see the European buyer come as well. What about India? You know, it's really funny you asked that because we had a call today, actually, mm-hmm. with a group from India who um, we're hoping is going to be a finance partner for a new project that we're hoping to get off the ground this year. Um, and I asked them specifically, why do I not see more buyers from India? There's so much wealth there. It's, yeah. We didn't practice this, folks. This is <laughs> totally my chance. Okay, And I love when that happens. And, and so what they explained to me, and they were based in London, they're not even in India, <laughs> um, is you think it's hard to get money out of China? It's yeah. just as hard to get money out of India, maybe more difficult. Wow. So um, what she had said is that she thinks she's go- we're going to start seeing more money coming out of India because there's been in the last couple of years, a lot more planning to shift money away and get it into the States but she actually told me that getting money out of India is, is as challenging, if not more, than getting it out of China. Wow. Because I've always been amazed. It's such a huge marketplace. It's the second most populous country in the world, right? And, and we rarely see that wealth come here. I right. I really understand why. And,
1: and I've and I've read that the next wave, the next culture to really come is going to be India. But it hasn't materialized.
0: Exactly. And I think I think you're going to start to see it. But it sounds like they they've had a plan more to do it, you know, just like families from India have been planning like for generations to get their money out. Right? You know, and they put together 20 cousins. Like, maybe that might be the other thing, too. Not to be stereotypical or anything, but you got, you know. Depends on how many family members you might have that can each get the maximum amount out of a country. Right. right. So that might have something to do with it too. But I've always been interested in why the Indian marketplace has not caught up more with New York. Um, and now I have my answer. <laughs> Although for some reason, it seems to get to London.
1: Yeah, exactly. It does.
0: Yeah. But there's a big culture there in London. There is a huge culture there in London. There is. There is. Um, you know, and, and and again, the foreign buyer is laser focused on new they they don't want first of all of course they don't want a co-op but they don't even want a used condo they want shiny brand new they want the views they want the finishes they want the they want the amenities that it is laser focused on brand spanking new and the nice thing about it you know because the rental market has been so um, competitive recently is They're actually able to rent these apartments out and at least break even if not make a couple of bucks, which for them is fine because they're not looking for big return. They're really looking for, you know, long term appreciation or to have their family move into it at some point.
1: So do you think there's a because there was actually they couldn't come here at all. Um, Is there pent up demand where it's going to be an enormous wave?
0: in the foreign market, or just in general? In the foreign market, I, I, I think I think there, I think we'll continue to see it grow back to the back to the levels where we saw it in the past. Okay. Uh, you know, the only thing that's going to slow that down, frankly, is that there aren't a lot of new projects coming out in the marketplace that are going to fill the one to three million dollar um, price point, which is something that's that that is going to um, constrain that that ability for the investor to purchase. Uh, you know, the, most of the stuff that's in the pipeline is higher end um, or larger units. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see a gap, which is actually going to, which is probably going to see, you know, great appreciation over the next couple of years in the lower end of the market.
1: You always said you guide your, you guide your developers to make what there isn't. That's right. And so are you guiding your people? Look, you've got to make the 2 million and below product.
0: You know, it really depends on where it is, but yes, like the the client that we're talking about on the West side with the, with this uh, potential Indian investor, uh, that would be like a one to $3 million product. Uh, We're talking to a client in, in the Gramercy area, also like a one and a half to three and a half million dollar product. But if I'm building a tower, we're going to push the prices because the one thing that this market has proven is views always out perform the market they set a new standard in the market really
3: yeah Yeah. i would just to add to that i mean steve hit the nail on the head the the inventory that remains and you know one thing that we look at closely in new development that differs a bit with the resale market is shadow inventory so shadow inventory is all the units that are left in these new developments that are not actively listed on the market you don't see them on a listing service um, they haven't been brought to market, and typically, you know, as we practice inventory control in these buildings, you know, lower price point, quicker absorption, um, and these larger, more expensive units tend to remain on the market longer. So, although there's, you know, around 1,500 units actively marketed in new development, there's closer to 6,000 units in real inventory. Um, so, about 4,500 units that you're not seeing listed on the market that remain in these buildings to sell. And, you know, those typically have higher price points um, in that void, you know, that Steve said that one to 3 million, maybe that first or second purchaser who wants to live full time in that apartment in New York or potentially as an investment to rent it out, there's a major lack of product.
1: So that's a ratio of about, that's about 25% of the inventory is, Visible to the public essentially is that generally is that ratio is that what it was pre COVID and what it generally tends to be?
3: Yeah, typically I would say it's you know even a bit less than than 25 percent. You know, just looking at our full shadow numbers, it's actually you know closer to north of 5,000. And that's you know that's pretty standard. You know, no building is going to put all of their listings on the market at once, but then again, pre pandemic and really the last. Five six years, there were a lot of mega towers built um, with you know 6,000 square foot homes. Um, you know when the market was was really strong, and you know then then COVID hit, and we're we're yeah. getting back to it. So there there's a lot of you know what we call trophy units left on the market to move, and you know a lot that you know their floor plans that were designed. You know these new developments take you know three four or five years to build floor plans that were designed for the buyer at the time with this shift in our cultural movement and our our work from home and kids being home more and in and out of the city, the layouts that were necessarily designed may not, may not work anymore, which, you know, we, you know, Steve and I and our team, we try to, you know, there's no crystal ball of what the future is, but we try to design these buildings so that they they adapt to what people will need in the future. Um, And we're seeing, you know, a lot of the product that's sitting on the market right now is, uh, you know, either overpriced or the layouts just simply don't work for the demands of the buyer today.
2: The Zoom room, are we still building Zoom rooms or is Zoom room (laughs) 2021?
3: Zoom rooms are in. We are still building Zoom rooms. <laughs> Everyone still, needs privacy.
0: <laughs> that we're still building them. Um, as a matter of fact, if anything, we're adding more. Um, you know, at 200 Amsterdam, we have two. And every time I go to that building, it's being used. It, wow. it, the, the gym, hardly ever. The <laughs> zoom room, all the time. Um, That's amazing. You know, the other thing that, that, that you should always note about inventory, right? So particularly when you're working with a buyer, you know, And they say, well, you know, I just read this article and there are 7,000 new development units in Manhattan. And I literally just had lunch with um, Melissa Birch, who's a developer. She's the head of development at Len Lease. They're doing the Claremont across the street, actually, from, from Van Der Water. And um, we were comparing notes and talking. And the way that we, Brown, Harris, Stevens, and Laura, mm-hmm. uh, and Robin Schneiderman, our director of business development, who works closely with Laura on our on our research, the way that we look at inventory, is different than the way that our competitors look at inventory. We look at inventory based upon what's really coming to market. In other words, does it have financing? Does it have construction financing? You know, Because if it's just an idea or there was an article about it, but they don't have financing, the chances are less than 50-50 that it's ever going to happen. So we were talking about what real inventory is. And so first of all, you have to distill what's in the news from what's really financed. But then you have to take a look at the couple of buildings in the city that are going to be around until like my grandchildren are going to college,
3: right? <laughs> My grandchildren.
0: <laughs> you know, like, you know, mega buildings, like no offense to the buildings. I'm not disparaging the buildings, but one Manhattan Square, 800 plus apartments. That thing's going to be on the market forever. So even though they've sold a lot, they still have like 400 plus apartments to sell. One Wall Street, 700 or so apartments. They have like 600 plus apartments to sell. Just those two buildings alone is a thousand units.
3: Wow. Yeah. And, you know, to Steve's point, it's, wow. it's how to keep the product fresh. You know, that's, that's a huge part of our job. That's a lot of units, it's a lot of years at sale. Um, and, you know, bringing, you know, the, the research into the new development and what we're seeing in that inventory. It's, you look at those numbers and yeah, like Steve said, there's a few buildings out there that, that, you know, a new development can range from six units to 800 units. Um, And, you know, you look at the activity of some of these, you know, one Manhattan Square is a great example. They had, you know, I think about 10 contracts last month. You know, that's great. And for any building that would seem, you know, that's phenomenal um, for a standard size building, but you know, it still takes a lot lot of 10 units a month to to sell out that product. Exactly. So, you know, it's just
0: important when you're working with those buyers to really understand that, like, there's, there's real inventory, and then there's inventory that's just a number on a page, right? It's the same thing, you know, when you're looking at your resale business, right? There are real sellers out there. And then there's a seller out there that, you know, has a $4 million apartment that they're asking $8 million for. Right. You know, and if I get it, I'll sell it. But it's it's not really real inventory. So be really careful when you're working with a new development buyer and they tell you, you know, that they think the market's weak because there's all this inventory out there. Because there really is not. And when you talk about good inventory, it's even smaller. So
1: how is the good inventory because there I mean construction slowed, stopped essentially. Are we going to be in a position like we were in 2013 where there's really
0: Really, um, I mean, I, I'm going to let Laura take the, the bulk of this, but yes, the answer is yes. We're going to see um, we're going to see a gap in inventory, right? And and Laura, maybe you want to talk about what's in the pipeline that, that that's you know kind of the yeah. future.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the pipeline, and you know, as Steve mentioned, we look at real pipeline, not just you know land trades and buildings that have been talked about and buzzed about in the news, but buildings that are planned, they're filed, they're financed, you know, it's just over about 2000 units, which is not a lot. And that's, you know, that's coming to market over the next four or five years. Um, And those, again, those buildings range from, you know, it could be 10 units to a few hundred units, but yes, there will be a gap in approachable inventory. If you have thousands of buyers that want that $5 million plus market, you know, it's out there, there is that shadow inventory that's waiting to sell. But, you know, the price point that we discussed earlier that $3 million and under sweet spot, there is a definite need for product at that price point. You know, that speaking to the resale market, you know, that's right in that resale sweet spot. But these buyers, especially past pandemic and, you know, through the pandemic are looking for that extra home office, that amenity space. That outdoor space, the views and the new, Um, you know, that's the expectation that we see a lot of buyers have now. And that product got eaten up so quickly through 2020 and 2021 in new development.
1: So from a supply and demand perspective, that means prices are just going to
0: skyrocket. Prices should go up. Um, the, the things that will constrain prices are continuing increases in in, in in real estate taxes. Although this past year, we got a little lucky and taxes in many buildings actually stayed stable, came down a little bit, but they're going to go up in the future. Operating expenses are awful right now. Right. Yeah. So, you're, so, you know, you have to take a look at that and interest rates are going up. So with interest rates going up, I think interest rates going up is going to have a. Um, uh, a negative, obviously, impact on on that ability for the market to really push up because for every you know 500 or, or you know 100 basis points, you know your buying power is going down. Um, so I, I think we will see appreciation, Roberto, and I think that the the constraining inventory will push prices up. But I think that if interest rates rise in correlation with that we may just be kind of more of an equilibrium. Sure. But, it- the, but
1: then, but hang on, just well, let me just follow up on that. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, John. <laughs> but then it comes, becomes about affordability. That's right. Right. Which is going to constrain
0: the market. It, it does. I mean, it's, 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 like I said, it's going to be a kind of a push me, pull me, right. You know? Yeah. Um, but then who knows, you know, we could have another event, hopefully positive event, that pushes more people to the for sale marketplace and buoys the market again. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah, so, right. um, you know, it's 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 a delicate dance right now between inventories, interest rates, total carrying costs and also availability within your price point. You know, it, it it's. I mean, I get calls every day. It's amazing. Like even for five million dollars, it's hard to find like a really good apartment on the Upper West Side right now. Right, Roberto, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I hear you.
1: Yeah, and
3: you know, to your point about you know the prices and you know there's a there's a ceiling for what people will pay. You know, you prices will appreciate and increase, but you know someone's budget, you know, they're not going to go a million bucks over their budget for this one to $3 million sweet spot. You know, Steve and I are always amazed in the ultra luxury market, how people kind of just come up with another 500K million dollars out yeah. of their back pocket, yeah. for the ultra yeah. luxury, but for the, for these smaller units and the one to 3 million, you know, you may be able to push a hundred thousand, 150, but typically, you know, there, there is a definite ceiling of what people are willing willing to pay, especially if it's a, a first time condo buyer in a new development. And
1: which new the business. alternative means you have to rent, which is going to push the rental prices, too.
3: Yes, it is. And, you know, incentives not only in the rental buildings, in the condo buildings, the incentives are, you know, going down across the board. People were getting two, three months Ticks. free through the pandemic, you know, incentives in the condo market, we were seeing, you know, almost 20% closing costs thrown in transfer costs and across the rental and condo market, those incentives are, are very quickly diminishing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I actually was just for 393 West End, John, I was just looking at um, rental rates of three bedroom apartments on the Upper West Side um, mm-hmm. for, for, for our, our sponsor who was just interested in like, you know, if someone wanted to buy this apartment and rent it out today, what would happen? Um, first of all, you pretty much need a either a co-op or condo sublet because there are very few three-bedroom apartments that are appropriately sized for the Upper West Sider. Um, and the minimum price for a three-bedroom between, what was it, 70, 69th Street and 86th Street was was like eleven thousand dollars a month. That was the minimum price for a three-bedroom rental. So it would range from eleven thousand to twenty-three
2: thousand.
0: Wow. So if I, uh, I and by the that, way, that wasn't even like a high floor.
2: I think what I hear you talking about is two different markets, though. What I heard was the average price point was four million dollars, but the bulk of the market, the bulk of the activity, is one to three million dollars. And therefore, you've got some very expensive condos at the very high end that tend to make that average $4 million. So could we, I want to drill down a little bit more granularly and because when you say that taxes, interest rates, and rising common charges are making less affordable and that's going to impact the market, is that going to affect both markets? Are markets on the Upper West Side as price sensitive as the ones uh, in in Brooklyn, I mean, are you painting the entire market with one brush? Is the high end behaving the same as the one to three is behaving?
3: I would say no. I mean, Steve, if you go
2: ahead, you go ahead, go ahead talk. me. Yeah,
3: I would say no. You know, those the ultra luxury buyer, let's say you know, ten million and over. These monthly common charges, monthly taxes, a slight increase is not going to to deter them nearly as much as it would a one to 3 million buyer um, or, you know, the, the lower end of the new development market. Um, you know, there's a diff- it's a different buyer, it's a different sensitivity. And, and when we talk about new development, there are some very, very different buildings. You know, the average new development dollar per foot right now is around 2,200 a foot. But some of these buildings go up to 6,000 a foot. Some enter the market Around 1800 a foot. 130 William is a great example downtown. They had very good, great absorption um, at around 16, 17, 1800 a foot. So, you know, we're looking at averages, but the market covers, you know, 16 to to 8,000 a foot. You know, some of these units, some units go for 10,000 a foot, you know, the penthouses and, and the Mega Towers and Billionaires Row. So those buyers have a different sensitivity to two interest rates and two monthly common charges and taxes, then, then, you know, your buyers in the four and under five and under market. So
2: are you advising your next client that he should be basically that there is a lack of inventory and there's a good opportunity at the high end of the market and at the low end of the market, there's opportunities throughout or are there better opportunities in certain neighborhoods to make money and at certain price points?
0: I think, I think there are, um, still opportunities at the high end of the market, but it's very location specific, uh, you know, where, where the middle market, there really is no low end of the marketplace anymore, um, is, is a little bit more um, free flowing and, and, and open to, you know, kind of secondary markets. I mean, look at, I mean, not the Lower East Side, the secondary market, but let's look what's going on in the Lower East Side right now. Um, you know, but also, you know, think about it, like when you talk about one to $3 million, you know, for a million and a half dollars, you're talking about like a 650 square foot, one bedroom apartment. Right. So that's still yeah. a pretty big number <laughs> for a 651 square foot, one bedroom apartment.
3: It, it really is. And, and, you know, it. just a second, Steve, you know, it, it really varies building by building, neighborhood by neighborhood, because your buyer changes. You know, I love to look at the Gramercy up to Flatiron, up to Nomad change over the last few years few years ago, no one was talking about Nomad. No one would want to live in Nomad, you know, and now um, there are, you know, a handful of new development luxury buildings in Nomad getting around 23 to 2,500 a foot, you know, higher than a lot of these buildings that were on 2nd and 3rd Avenue in Gramercy about four or five years ago, whenever they entered the market. So, you know, part of our job is and why developers come to us to advise on these new developments is what is happening in the neighborhood. And that's not necessarily just from a residential standpoint. You know, what what retail is coming in, what infrastructure is coming into that neighborhood, what schools, what natural amenities within the neighborhood. And that really drives our our demographic of the buyer. And ultimately, our buyer demographic drives our recommendation for what to build.
2: I have a theory. In (laughs) Connecticut, the fact COVID caused the commute to go from first or second most important thing to maybe like eighth on the list for a lot of people. Uh, And frankly, the way they commute, car versus train. Mm -hmm. So I have a theory that your nomad example is (laughs) at least in part, um, because the old notions of commute and living where we work, I've uh, gone away, and that's opened up new markets in Connecticut. Now people are willing to live in Easton, you know, where they wouldn't many years, you know, five five years ago. Is that also true in Manhattan?
3: And, I think we're York. seeing. I think we're seeing both. You know, there's there's two trends. There is the buyer who, you know, a lot of people believe as of now that they will indefinitely work from home, so they're willing to live a bit farther out or farther away from main transportation or walk to work, um, you know, in order to potentially get more space for more money. Then we also have, like, you know, I'm hearing, you know, a big majority of people are still in flux. They're expected to be in the office two, three days a week. Um, You know, they're not expected to be in the office from 9am to 6pm, but they may be expected to go in, for a meeting and start their morning at home and go back in the afternoon. So we're also seeing people who do want to be within a walking distance of their main office. And then that also gets back to our whole amenity conversation of, you know, being able to be at home, but be able to step outside your home within your building and feel as though you have privacy or somewhere to work or somewhere to go. So. You know, there's, I think we're still in a bit of a flux situation in Manhattan with where people are working, um, whether that's at home or in the office. You know, another thing that we're seeing, and I'm seeing this a ton, is people who were renting in the city, gave up their lease, bought homes upstate, bought homes out east, and now they, that was a big surge in some buyer activity the last half of this year. Now they are expected to be back in the city and you know the inventory to be back in the city. And as you all know, the rental prices were absolutely crazy, crazy high the last half of the year. Um, and it, it forces people to look into into buying too. So I really think it touches three segments of the market in terms of you know, where they're working and how people are working now.
0: Yeah, and, and we're seeing a lot of buyers like at View John, which is one of the projects you mentioned that uh, you know, we're working on now, a lot of our buyers there are, are buying there, not just because it's a great project, but because they want to be able to literally be a 10 to 15 minute walk to their place of work. Um, the other thing that we saw and that continue to see during COVID. is Wait, so location is driving the view? Lo- location is definitely driving the view. And but and 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 you know, view is also has great proximity to NYU Hospital. The medical field has been a huge component of the resurgence in the for sale marketplace. The number of um, doctors, nurses, uh, uh, you know, interns that are coming into the city for the medical hey, field. Stephen, Stephen,
2: medicine doesn't pay anymore. How does the doctor <laughs> or a nurse? afford your fabulous apartments at the view
0: i'm telling you there's a lot of wealth there's a lot of wealth in this city and it is um you know and and parents are helping their adult children who are um med students or maybe they're their first or second year residency and they know that they're going to be spending a lot of time at the hospital um they're they're making sure that they have a comfortable place to live wow And, and you know the medical field i mean you know uh Nurse practitioners and the like make a pretty pretty good income. And uh, like I said, they, I think they have a lot of wealthy families behind them. What's a two-bedroom at the view cost? Uh, you can get into a small, well, small, 980-square-foot two-bedroom for just around $2 million. Uh, two bedrooms go up to about $3 million, depending and, on what and, floor you're on.
2: And you're saying that's a perfect uh, answer for a, a young doctor,
0: $2 million yeah. apartment. Two million. Yep, we have, we have people coming in with a budget for a one bedroom between one point two and two million dollars, and two bedrooms between about two one and three. You know, which which you know what five six seven years ago we would have all scoffed at and said that's 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 insane, you know. And now it's the norm. I you know, see
2: Curtis Jackson is on the call, and I'm wondering. And it makes me. He's the king of New Jersey, and I'm wondering, are they willing to go across the river? Or are they very, you've been talking a lot about Manhattan and I'm wondering, is, is Jersey City, you know, is Curtis getting some of the love? uh,
3: Yeah, you you know, I I can take that one. There are a lot of buyers in Jersey City, you know, we look across the river, you see tons of buildings going up, you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of buildings over in Jersey City over the last 10 years um, and I, I've seen firsthand over the last decade the shift from luxury rentals being built to luxury condos. You know, you have 99 Hudson, 800 units. Um, you know, people. Here's what I'll say: There's a difference between Jersey City and Brooklyn and Long Island City. Your Manhattan buyer most likely is going to go look to Brooklyn first. There is still. You know, a bit of a, a stigma, I would say, of people going from Manhattan to Jersey City. Even though that path commute, if you're downtown, seven minutes door to door to Jersey City, and you can get beautiful views. The views from Jersey City into Manhattan are are stunning. You know, better than looking the other way. Um, but we're not seeing we're not seeing a lot of our buyers look to Jersey City. You know, if you're Manhattan, we do see them looking to to Brooklyn. Yeah. And to Long Island
0: City and Astoria. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very um, rarely do I see in my sales reports of this buyer is also looking in Jersey City or Hoboken or Weehawken. But we see often, uh, you know, that they're looking in, in Brooklyn, Long Island City, um, you know, or, or kind of, or not that it's not Manhattan, but upper Manhattan. Uh, right. but, but we don't get a lot of crossover with, with, with Jersey. Steve, can we talk about forbearances? Last year
1: at this point, it was, it was a foregone conclusion that several people were probably going to go down, several buildings, projects, et cetera, HFC, H, uh, HFZ being the, the number one on the map. Yeah. Has, has everybody else, for the most part, survived, like the Hayworth
0: and all these places? So the Hayworth is changing hands. That deal will be done soon um, and will most likely come back as a condominium. Uh, the Centrale somehow made it out by the skin of its teeth. And uh, it's the same, same developer, but but they, they were further along and probably had a little bit more reasonably priced product as well. So the, the, the Centrale survived. The Hayworth is changing hands. The XI, as we all know, is changing hands. 100 um, East 53rd Street, which we, Brown, Harris, Stevens, are about to relaunch. Um, kind of changed hands it went from it went from one partner to the other partner A.B. Rosen got taken out by Banke. Um, so those those are being reinvented and East and 53rd Street prices are being drastically changed in, in, in a positive direction for buyers. Um, but you still have some others 125 Greenwich is still out there and kind of floating around uh, but but for the most part forbearance is, Were staved off mostly because the banks didn't want to take back the asset, right? You know, um, so some of the failures that we had thought were going to come just because the banks had no appetite for the asset, they got staved off, um, which was frankly good for the marketplace because you know you don't want that, uh, but you know, a lot of deals got restructured. So the Hayworth basically is a restructure with someone new coming in, right? 125 Greenwich will be a restructure with someone new coming in. Um, what we're not seeing is a lot of these buildings go the rental route. You know, they still don't really make sense on, on a rental pro, pro forma. So uh, Were any
1: of them re-con- like reconceived, like they were just, they were poorly designed units and they've really had to go in and actually make changes?
0: No, most of them were kind of torn apart. It's it's more just dropping the basis so you can sell them at a reasonable price. price. Yeah, yeah. Because to start tearing them apart and reconfiguring them, you know, it, it's a nightmare. And not only is it a nightmare because it's time and money, but like no one puts wood floors down throughout the apartment, right? So if you have a wall, now you have a gap. So now you either have to put all new floors down or fill the floors and the floors never look right, you know, um, and a lot of them just didn't work. So it's really just reconfiguring, I mean, repricing, rebranding and, and trying to reposition the product for, 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 for the market today.
1: OK, so now you're working with a new client. How do you pro forma the next two or three years out based upon where we are? Like, What are you telling them?
0: Well, I mean, and, and Laura, feel free to jump in. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, we're looking at the pipeline, right? What's coming? So what's the competitive set look like so that we know what, what our competition will be, right? We're looking at pricing trends in the marketplace and we're looking at what has performed well in the recent market as well. Um, but really what we're looking for is holes. So if we see that the pipeline is all, you know, larger three and four unit, you know, three and four bedroom units, then we're going to be looking towards the ones and twos, um, you know, but again, it's location specific as well. You know, if I'm on the Upper West Side, no matter what happens, I'm probably not building a lot of studios and one bedroom. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, exactly what Steve said. When we look at pipeline, we don't just look at, you know, what building, what block is coming on. We want to dive deep into their floor plans into their unit sizes, you know, further than even just looking at, you know, is it studios, ones, two, threes, we look at the sizes of those units too. You know, we don't want a market flooded with all 700 square foot, one bedrooms. We want to differentiate ourselves, build flex spaces, you know, have outdoor space where we can. Um, So really looking at what performed well and, you know, really who is your buyer? You know, we, it's very easy to you know look at a floor plate and squeeze in some floor plans and square footages, but how is someone actually going to live in that home? Yeah. If it is a family, their kitchen is going to be very different than you know a new couple. They may both be buying a two bedroom or a three bedroom, but we want to look at who's buying there, and then how do we how do we size those units and design them and price them accordingly to you know who the demographic makeup of our building will be. And that, again, leads directly into our amenities and also the interior design of the buildings as well.
0: Yeah, and like, you know, especially in like living rooms and dining areas, right? I mean, the the demand for more space in a living room for, you know, whatever for whatever reason, maybe it's because you need to live and work at home or, you know, you have a family and your family has grown. Um, your children might be getting older, or you, now you're in a new phase of your life and you're empty nesters, but now you're expecting the, you know, the mishbukka to come over one day. You know, um, <laughs> we're finding that buyers, in, particularly in New York City, always seem to find that extra couple of hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to get a little bit more room. So, you know, <laughs> typically we set guidelines for the you know, sizes of studios, ones, two, three, four bedroom apartments, and for each room our living rooms are growing because you, the, the the amount of space that people want for circulation is more. So like we used to say we wanted a minimum of a 23 foot living room for a three bedroom. Now I need
4: 25 to
2: 30 you, well, I asked about New Jersey and you said the Manhattan buyer is not willing to go to New Jersey. It's kind of what I heard, the typical one. Typically. but. I looked at your market report and read it, and Brooklyn is like going crazy. And you see this Van to Water, that's not exactly in Manhattan. That's morning, Morningside
1: Heights, right? Morningside
0: Manhattan. That's Manhattan. <laughs> it anyone, anyone who went
1: to <laughs> Look how far away party, is Manhattan is. <laughs> that's very Manhattan. <laughs> it's
2: like Canada. All no, right, but
3: so. you know, there's to your point, you know. Steve and I, you know, we're we're working on something in Inwood right now. So, you know, people are looking, you know, north, north in Vanderwater, further out, Mott Haven, Inwood, you know, farther out in Queens. So the buyer may not necessarily be going to to Jersey. You know, the Manhattan buyer, the Jersey market is still very, very strong, but the Manhattan buyer is specifically looking, you know, more more north or more into Queens, and then, you know, farther areas in Brooklyn, like Gowanus. Gowanus has a ton in the pipeline, a ton in the works. And, you know, five years ago, that was, that was not the case. You know, we saw that happen with, with Bushwick a few years ago. We saw it happen with Greenpoint. We saw it happen with Long Island City starting about 10 years ago. And, you know, you you have to keep building out and people are willing to pay, you know, these previous Manhattan prices to be, to be farther out of Manhattan.
0: And, and you're right, uh, by the way, Brooklyn has been also a real bright spot in the marketplace for the last actually 18 months. Brooklyn, even in the heat of COVID, was still doing pretty well. Um, some people were fleeing to Brooklyn for a little bit more space, uh, you know, a little bit more convenience because you've got all the different neighborhoods, for what, 48 you know, different neighborhoods. Is Brooklyn. it
2: limited to just Brooklyn with a view or like primo Brooklyn or all, all of Brooklyn has been hot?
0: I mean, pretty much all of Brooklyn, because even Eastern Brooklyn now, like all the way out, you know, to 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 Rockaway, is is actually doing well. Different demographics of buyers, much different demographics of buyers, yeah. but Brooklyn in general is just doing really, really well. And and um, the absorption in Brooklyn has been tremendous. You know, there are a couple of big buildings, obviously, like Eleven Hoyt that absorbed a lot of units. We our, our proper our project at Ten Nevins absorbed a lot of units, and now even like there's a there's a, a development in in Dumbo called the Olympia that has like starting prices in the low 2000s a square foot, I believe. And it's even selling well. And like, you know, that price point in Brooklyn is a price point that really was reserved for the top of a building or a unit with amazing outdoor space, uh, you know, or like the heart of Brooklyn Heights and, and they're, they're doing really well. So Brooklyn is, um, Brooklyn is not, is certainly not an emerging market. Bro- Brooklyn is is a very stable and and growing market. Gowanus is emerging. Gowanus is emerging because of the rezoning. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount going on there. Laura just did a huge report on Gowanus. Yeah,
3: Gowanus is definitely emerging. You know, now is, you know speaking of places to look you know, to buy investor clients or, you know, get in early its for sure. And, you know, just back to Steve's point about Brooklyn and just a huge trend that we've been seeing in buyers is outdoor space. And, you know, these Brooklyn new developments over the last few years had more units with private outdoor space than your typical Manhattan new development. Um, and we're seeing such a demand, you know, we just did a study a couple days ago on, the January contract activity for new developments in Manhattan and over 26% of the contracts for the month had private outdoor space, whether that's a small Juliet balcony to a private terrace. So there's so much demand for that. And there's currently not a lot of product in Manhattan with approachable outdoor space, but these Brooklyn new developments have you know, great opportunity for that buyer.
2: A year ago, you were very bullish on New York. New York is back you know, and, and uh, you should be building and you should be buying because, you know, and you were right. And you started the show and you explained that the single biggest reason for that is that there's what, $667 trillion
0: slashing around? Is that what you said? It was, it was, uh, there was thirty about $37 trillion of new wealth created in the last 24 to 30 months. Bitcoin, stock market, <laughs> most earnings. Mostly stock market, I would assume a lot of it's in Bitcoin as well. But I think most of it's more traditional. Um, You know, we get asked all the time, like, you know, you seeing buyers buying with Bitcoin. I mean, (laughs) those deals do happen, but they're few and far between. You know, developers take enough enough risk building a building and taking on the debt that they take on, they don't need the arbitrage risk of, you know, having their Bitcoin go up and down 10 and 20% every day. So
2: Bitcoin aside, there all this money, all this wealth in the market. You're still bullish when you're looking five and seven years out. Cause when I talk to Scott Hobbs and I'm going to ask him to unmute right now, he <laughs> says, Oh yeah, the party's going to be good. We're building great big houses for great big wealthy customers. And we are feeling good about the next couple of years. But when does the party end Steve? Laura,
0: Scott, when does the party end? When are we going to pay the bill? I mean, I I don't know. You know, my crystal ball is a little hazy right now because everything's a little bit off. Um, you know, we've got we've got a potential war in, in, in Eastern Europe. You know, we've we've we we have got you know a, a government that no matter what side of the coin you're on is it is is just can't get anything done properly. Um, so you know, my feeling is that. If government just kind of stays out of things and just does nothing, and things calm down in Eastern Europe, we have a good road ahead because we're coming, we're, we're, we're recovering, right? So things should continue to flourish and, and, and inflation is gonna relax. I mean, this is a moment in time. You know, inflation's gonna relax once, you know, we're already seeing, I don't know about all of you, but like I was hearing about a friend every single day or a coworker that had COVID I haven't had that report in two weeks. I haven't had one Fred report getting COVID in two weeks now. Okay, that's huge. So if we can keep on leveling this curve, getting things under control, eventually supply chains will, will 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 free up, and I think we we have good economic times ahead because of all that. You know,
2: for how long? Because because you're advising, you're
0: always going to hit a cycle. I mean, I think. COVID in some ways created a weird cycle, much like I, again, not to sound morbid, but much like 9/11 did for those of us that were around during 9/11, we were heading into a dark place financially in, in, in the summer of, of, of 11, okay? I, I mean, in the summer of 2000. and and we skipped a cycle. I think COVID created a different cycle. So I think normally we run in five, five to seven years cycle, Scott. I think we're probably gonna, we probably just created that five year cycle. So I think we've got a good five years ahead of us actually. And, you know, our our population keeps growing. Unfortunately, the West Coast environmental issues are not gonna get better. They're only gonna get worse, unfortunately. The East Coast is reasonably stable when it comes to that. At least we don't have, you know, we don't have wildfires every six months. And I think the Northeast is going to continue to see, you know, positive, positive moves in the, in in the economy and in housing for at least the next five years. Laura?
3: Yeah, I agree. You know, my whole feeling that whole time when you asked the question and Steve was talking was, you know, New Yorkers are resilient. New York's resilient. We've, we've backed, you know, we've come back after 9-11, you know, through this pandemic, there's there's no market like Manhattan. There's nowhere to live like Manhattan. There's nowhere to work like Manhattan. So although I think, you know, the outer boroughs and, you know, upstate New York and out East and Connecticut are also going to thrive. I, I only see New York continuing to thrive and, you know, going through the, the typical cycles that our economy faces and the challenges and, you know, the unpredictability that we face, but each and every time the New York real estate market has, has bounced back.
0: And and John, you know, I've got developers right now. They're, they're not only looking New York, but they are looking at Connecticut. Like they're Mm -hmm. looking at Bridgeport. They're looking at New Haven. They're, they're seeing that these areas are, are changing and that they are desperate for housing. And, you know, that's a good sign. When my developers are saying like, I want to branch out to Connecticut. I want to branch out to other areas. It means that they see positive things coming down in the future for the economy and for the real estate market. Yeah,
2: Connecticut is closed. We have no room. They're all going to come <laughs> right back to come right back. I'll to see you me. this weekend. No,
0: what do you mean? You're full listings. You need product. <laughs> you need
2: product. But we got nothing to sell them right now.
0: When's like, the party? Like, in? What, like, how much inventory do you have in your markets right now? Like almost nothing.
2: Yeah, almost nothing. It's it's never been wow. this tight. And and honestly, and I put this in my market report, and it's not uh, it's not cool for me to say this out loud, but I'm going to say it. Um, what you're seeing is. Um, Agents are holding listings as pocket listings. Uh, so uh, you've, you've got a problem with too little inventory to begin with. Mm-hmm. But that is exacerbated by the fact that agents are holding them close to, to keep a, cu- a competitive advantage. So, what was a 40% decrease in listings has now become a 60, 70% decrease in listings. And it's it's getting, you know, and, and one way to solve that is through the MLS cracking down on the practice, but that's not happening right now. So you have to call agent by agent by agent and ask them about shadow inventory, which is why I was fascinated when you talked about shadow inventory, really only 25% of what's available is on the market in your world. And I thought, wow, uh, that's that's kind of what's happening in
0: my world too. Yeah. The only difference is at least in our world, we know where the shadow inventory is, it's not released. <laughs> you know, at least we can find it. you know it's on a schedule someplace. It, 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 it's just not right in front of us.
2: Scott Hobbs, didn't you say that the chief economists uh, are predicting that the the cycle ends in five years? Are we looking at 2027? I think at, uh, in following into trend research and some other economists, I mean we're going to have some sort of a recession in the next three, four five years. I think there's a huge, huge just backlog right now like that recession should be relatively minor and then around 2030 that's when kind of the bills start coming due and and again for who and in what part of the economy who knows but you know again we're over 30 trillion in debt the interest rates the inflation every other stuff. there's a lot of stuff going on um 2030 but until then let's have some fun yeah so it's
0: like i say 5 <laughs> to 7 years i
4: i i, I agree you know um, what do economists know anyway I love you, Greg. 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 Greg, what does your crystal ball say? Uh, You're wrong about inflation. Um, Supply chains can be worked out. When you pump 40% more money into people's pockets, inflation's going to be here for years. It's not going to be over in six months to a year. It's going to be an ongoing problem. The Fed has really been guilty of malpractice during this whole cycle continuing to print money, not even thinking of the consequence. Um, So I'm a little worried about more long-term inflation. But I, I, you know, go ahead, Steve, what were you saying? No, I I said okay.
1: From a a standpoint of of the intensity of the inflation, I mean, we're at seven, eight or whatever. Do you feel that it'll be down to
4: four? It's hard to put a number on it because- The Fed's going to begin tightening in March. They're already tapering their bond purchases, which means stocks are going to be volatile um, You know, because the last thing the stock market wants to see is an alternative to the stock market. Um, They want bond yields as low as possible so people put all their money in stocks. I think the problem is that we have a Fed that has their head in the sand that's being asked to do too many jobs. And if they start hiking 25 basis points a meeting, three or four times this year, or maybe even five, that's not going to be quick enough to stop this. So 7% year-over-year inflation is something we haven't seen in 40 years. And when the average person's pay is going up about 5%, you can see where the math doesn't work. And you're not going to get that growth in consumer spending, which accounts for 70% of GDP. A lot of people are looking potentially for negative GDP growth in the first quarter of this year for that reason. Um, You know, and the fact that companies can't find enough workers, that's another problem. So the economy has issues. I think it's going to be okay for the, for the next couple of years. But I do think if the government continues to want to print money and pass stimulus plans that the economy doesn't need, I, I think inflation is the biggest problem we have. We have, almost 10 and a half million jobs available in the United States. So, you know, we have companies hurting for workers. We need to address that so the economy can grow at potential. So so the jobs report Friday, we'll see what we'll see what the jobs report says tomorrow. The ADP numbers were negative. So we'll see what the BLS numbers for job growth in January look like could be a disaster.
1: So, Greg, is holding a physical asset
4: like real estate a good move in an inflationary environment? Of course it is. It's always a good move to hold real estate. Um, Yeah, I mean, conceivably the price will go up, especially if it's an income-producing property, you know, because rents will go up with everything else. Um, And I think as the stock market gets more volatile, which we've certainly seen in the last couple of weeks, last week was the first positive week stocks have had this year. Um, And we were looking for a January bounce. I mean, you know, we remember the January effect? January is typically the best month for stocks. But January was not a good month for stocks this year. So I I think people will be looking. I think the foreign investor coming back is great for us um, because we have an asset that will do well in an inflationary environment. They don't care as much about interest rates because they want to pay cash. Um, You know, I, I think that that is certainly a good alternative.
1: Are they sensitive to the strength of the dollar?
4: I don't think they're thinking about it. I think they see the safety in the dollar. I mean, it's not like we're the only country with issues. Um, you know, inflation is is it, is it you know multi-decade highs in Europe as well. It's not just all governments have been you know silly enough to just print money to try to throw money at a problem to make it go away. So I don't. We're not. We're still the gold standard of currencies in the world. You know, we've been hearing for decades that the dollar is going to be replaced, but it's not. So.
1: Not with a digital currency?
4: <laughs> no. You're gonna put all your assets in Bitcoin? I don't think you are.
1: No, but they're talking about the government actually issuing digital currency, which would
4: put in, which would
1: collapse all of those others.
4: Well, you know, anything that's based, that's backed by full faith and credit in the United States should hold some degree of value. But ask Eric Adams how well cryptocurrencies do if you get paid in them, because he just lost 10% of his first paycheck. That's
2: right. <laughs> so anything more on your end of year report in conclusion? I mean, I'm feeling pretty good about the next three, four, five years. I'm feeling pretty good about holding real estate as a hard asset in inflationary times, feeling pretty good that um, you could do well, not just in Manhattan, but in Morningside Heights or Brooklyn <laughs> or even Gowanus as uh, opportunities. So, um, you know, how do we uh, take us out?
0: You know, I think, you know, back on what Greg said, you know, if we're looking at inflation, then real estate's a good place to put your money. You know, if you're looking at Manhattan, you know, every time we build a building, there's less available land to build another building, right? So, you know, it's a limited quantity. Um, And all this discussion, by the way, about converting office buildings to residential is a bunch of BS. It doesn't work. Okay. If it worked, it would have been done a long time ago. Mechanical systems are different. The floor plates are too deep. The glazing is different. Oh, we didn't even get into all the the changes in building code that are coming down the road that are going to increase developer costs, which is going to increase the price of apartments as well. We could do that in the next segment. Um, But you know what, John, I think Uh, you know, all things being equal, I I would never bet against New York. You know, it's kind of like betting against Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Um, You know, yeah, the Giants got the best of him, but, you know, seven other teams didn't. Uh, You know, so my feeling is, you know, New New York will continue to reinvent itself. Uh, You know, I think, I'm hoping that we have a mayor now that understands that you have to balance well the, 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 you know, the 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 needs of all and not just the needs of few. Uh, I think we have a I think we have a governor who also understands that and will work better with our mayor, which will be a good thing. And I, I think, you know, I think the future of New York is going to be very bright. And I do believe people are going to come back to the office. Okay. I do not believe people are going to stay home. They might stay home one day a week. You may end up with a four-day in office and one day at home work week. But I believe people want to get out of their houses. They want to go back to work. They want to see an active city. I was out for dinner last night with uh, Sarah Rada for her birthday, and the restaurant was hopping. People were happy. People were laughing. You know, no one sneezed. and ran out of the room. Um, and I listen. Everyone knows I've been very, very vigilant about COVID. But I think we're seeing the end. Of, you know, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel here, and I'm really cautiously optimistic. And I'm hoping, you know, that Greg, much like many weathermen, is only right half the time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Laura?
3: Yeah, I mean, exactly what Steve said. And I think it's, it's such an exciting time in new development, you know, seeing the city and the landscape of the city and neighborhoods emerge over the last decade or so. it's been so fulfilling and and we're seeing even more of it now. And, you know, our team specifically has some really exciting projects coming up this quarter that we're launching, you know, and, and all over the city. And I think it's a really exciting time for the market. And it's a great time, especially for new development, as we see shifts in, you know, the typical unit types that are being built, shifts in design, shifts in amenities. And, you know, it's it's great to be a part of it. And I think we're only gonna see more positive changes to adapt to this new lifestyle that we're in and, and you know having people come back to New York in such a thriving way.
2: Roberto, any, any final thoughts?
3: Um,
1: I'm very optimistic. I, this, we've just kind of reviewed what I, just exactly what I feel. The next three to five years are gonna be a nice methodical run and if you get in now, you know, you haven't, prices have come down, you know, from where we were once. So um, you miss the bottom, but you haven't missed the recovery. And it's an, op- it an amazing time to get in. So. All right.
2: Well, I think this is a great show. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Roberto. Yes. Thank you, Scott Hobbs. Thank you, Greg Heim, wherever you are. I think I heard a subway in the background. Um, next week, we have the Go, the candidate for governor in Connecticut, and I want to ask him about why, about how his ideas are going to affect the real estate market. Frankly, uh, I want because some of the feedback I've already gotten that Bob Stefanowski is going to be on this show is they said, "So what? All those guys are the same anyway. All those politicians, you know, they don't make a difference." Well, I want to give him a chance to tell me how come his policies are gonna make for a business friendly environment here in Connecticut? And how are they gonna be transportation friendly for my commuters? And how are they going to be tax friendly for my residents? So I wanna know how uh, Connecticut is gonna look from one of the guys who's studying the problem. So it's gonna be a great show and I hope you'll all join us next week for Bob Stefanowski. That
0: sounds thank really you awesome. all. Thank you so much. Guys, Bob. thank you so, so much. You know, thank I you for being here. here. Thank you so
3: much. Cheers. Skipper.
0: Our pleasure. Thank
3: you.